Well, we have one more week of Advent here before Christmas. Sunday uh, is next week and upon us. And we've, been t- we've taken a break through our normal series in Mark as in our time of Advent, going through and looking at some of the, the psalms that express how long, O Lord. Uh, Advent is a time of waiting and of longing, and these psalms uh, are the expressions of God's people uh, through the ages, but they're also the divinely inspired expressions that God has given to his people to cry out in their times of, of longing and of waiting, because a lot of times our waiting is not in the most pleasant of circumstances, because we are waiting for our Savior to come and to make all things new. Uh, before we, we look at Psalm 94 today, in this last Sunday before Christmas next week, let's take a moment, let's pray. Uh, let's pray for, for God's blessing upon his word and upon this time. Father, the words that you have given us here on these pages are not just words of men. Uh, They are the words from your spirit. Uh, They are not just words on a page of paper or words that we hear. This is your very word and bears witness to the word of God, Jesus Christ. Um, The whole Bible speaks of him. Because we need him. Uh, We are here waiting also. And so in our time of waiting, we pray that we would be expectant uh, as as your spirit would go forth and would make this word come alive to us so that its words might become our words also and that it might encourage us and it might build us more into the image of Jesus Christ, that it might convict us of our sins but yet lead us once again to his perfect and beautiful work for us. We beg now for your spirit's presence to be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is Psalm 94. Uh, This is the word of God. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been, on, had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. 
Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Amen. On May 14th, uh, 18-year-old armed white supremacist entered a grocery store into a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. Walking through the parking lot, he shot and killed three people. And then he walked into the store and he continued shooting and killing another seven more and all the while yelling racial slurs at his victims. And in a press conference afterwards, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said this, It strikes us in our very hearts to know that there is such evil that lurks out there. It's stunning to consider the evil within the world and the evil acts on which, which are performed on a daily basis. And even so, the scope on which they're performed... Of course, none of this takes into account the, the massive evils that are done by entire regimes at national or global levels. Right? We read in the news about the terror done by Putin's forces sent into Ukraine. Maternity hospitals being bombed, um, women and young girls being raped by soldiers, civilian infrastructures being needlessly destroyed. Uh, is in Islamic-dominated countries in the Middle East and in North Africa, human rights violations are an everyday part of life. Women are repressed and they are treated as being less equal than men. And in other parts of Africa, militias led by warlords capture villages and they take children as slaves. Communist China and its human rights track record is conveniently passed over by American corporations seeking business. But meanwhile, the government detains and tortures Muslims in the Northwest. And they torture the Uyghur people and they separate their children from their families. What goes through your mind when you come across and you read and hear about this kind of evil that goes on in the world? When people are killed like this. When genocide happens, or when people's God-given rights as bearers of his image are violated and they are repressed. When whole societies and systems are built upon pushing down the weak in favor of the strong. I mean, really, what can we do? Just be nice? Set a good example? Because honestly, if that's our response, do we really understand the magnitude of the evil that we're talking about here? And these are some of the questions, the real-life questions for us from Psalm 94 that are brought up here. The writer contemplates all the wrong that's being done in the world and against the weak and is trying to come to grips with it. It's ugly. It's brutal. And even though this was written in a different era than we live, in, it describes an experience that's just the same as ours today. History repeats itself. It's the same scenarios but with different actors in different settings and using different props. See, none of this is new. Evil people have always existed and acted wickedly. And God's people have always asked the same questions here. It's not always enough to just intellectually know that God has promised to scour the world from, from this plague. 
We're not brains on sticks. We have emotions which cry out too, especially when our guts are wrenched by some of what we see happening. God, where are you? Why are you waiting? How long, O Lord? And as we witness the wickedness done here in such deep degrees, it preps the soil for the seeds of unbelief to scatter and to take root. And growing up then as the weeds in our fields of faith. And if we don't reckon honestly with these questions, which can also mean crying out to God, then those weeds threaten to overrun our field. And God's people have always asked the same questions, just like in this psalm, which also means that the psalmist's cry for help and hope is also the same as ours. And that's the comfort that we have here, and for which we wait and we endure. And the main idea of the sermon this morning is just this. The God of vengeance warns the arrogant and comforts his people with certainty so that they will cry out in their waiting. The God of vengeance warns the arrogant and comforts his people with certainty so they will cry out in their waiting. And we're going to just simply break that down into four points. Those are our four points this morning here. And first we start out here, the God of vengeance. That's where the psalm begins. And that's where we need to begin. The Lord God, the God of vengeance. Vengeance isn't wrong, though we might think of it wrongly. Because sometimes we think of it in terms of like vigilante justice. But at its heart, is vengeance is retribution. It's acting in recompense to right a wrong that has been done. It's seeking after justice. Like any time a human court makes a judgment, whether it formally or informally by the masses on on social media, or even for us as we think this is the proper justice that needs to be enacted, there's a cry for the punishment to fit the crime. Vengeance isn't going overboard, but it's acting in fairness. That's the principle really of an eye for an eye. The punishment must fit the crime. It must be proportionate. For justice to be done properly, the punishment can't go too far, but it also can't come too short. And the Lord God here, it says, is a God of vengeance, of just retribution and recompense. What he sees and how he acts is in alignment with his perfect righteousness. He sees all things. He acts uh, in perfect righteousness. He knows all things. He knows and sees the full extent of the offenses committed And all the desires also that stem from them. Have you cried out, though, for the Lord to rise up as the God of vengeance as he is? And as it says here, it comes when we recognize him as the divine judge. And it ought to be natural, especially as we witness all the evils that we see in the world or the evils that we personally encounter. But there are three three considerations or maybe even three questions for us to think through. They're almost like objections because this doesn't always seem natural to us, thinking about crying out to the God of vengeance. And the first one is this, do we consider vengeance too strong? That sounds like a harsh word. But when you look though at the wrongs that are being committed in the world, even some of those that we had talked about at the beginning here, what does justice require? There are horrible atrocities happening on a daily basis, many of which we don't even know the full extent. What does justice require in a situation like that? 
What does justice require when one country needlessly and brutally assaults another country? Who's responsible? Are the soldiers off the hook? How do you sort through all of that? Or what does justice require when an entire part of society is literally built upon the backs of slaves who are wrongfully taken from their homeland? So if you rightly recognize the evil that's done in the world, then you must cry out for God to shine forth in his justice. All right, in his vengeance to act justly and deal with things accordingly, to set things right. And his justice doesn't come up too short. He knows the full extent and for all of the individuals who are involved. But his justice also doesn't go too far or to exceed what is right. He knows how to parse through the mess and to render the proper judgments. Don't you want it to be dealt with? Don't you want it to be done in the proper way? I mean, I certainly don't trust myself to mete out the, the proportionate justice that all these sorts of actions and scenarios fall for, or, uh, call for. I mean, I know how non-objective I can be in times. I know how I can follow my own feelings. I know myself. I know how I can waver between being too soft or being too harsh. Or people cry out for vengeance all the time for much lesser things calling out for greater, even greater punishments. The personal lives of relatively unknown individuals are ruined by one crass or one distasteful statement that they tweet. And then the whole world blacklists them for the rest of their lives. Now, crying out to the God of vengeance is recognizing him as the just judge and begging him then to act. Okay, so second, the second objection, though, is, well, what about Forgiveness. How does that fit in here? Well, the nature of justice means that it must take the wrong done seriously. Because letting the offender slide by isn't justice, and nor does it bring resolution to the offense. 2016, a Stanford swimmer was convicted of raping an unconscious woman. And the judge gave him a mere six-month jail sentence. And the public rightly exploded in anger and the judge was recalled because the severity of the wrong that was done wasn't taken seriously. Right? Justice can't wink and smile and just let evil go slide by. It needs to be dealt with. Consequences need to be had for justice to be satisfied. And the same goes for God's justice. It needs to be satisfied. If God just smiled and said, well, just let bygones be bygones, then we would be upset. And rightfully so. Don't you take this seriously, Lord? Haven't you seen the scope of this evil of what's being done? Justice entails both love and wrath. They actually go together. Because there's wrath because what God loves is being wronged. And there's love because God is standing up in his just wrath and not just letting it slide. His love has teeth. So when we think about forgiveness and we ask about it in regards to God's vengeance, we're giving up our rights, though, for retribution, and we're putting it in God's hands. And in that sense, it's very costly. It's not easy to let go of what we demand as right, but it also trusts, though, that God is the perfect judge and that he will do what's right. And forgiveness doesn't also mean that consequences shouldn't be followed. They're not the same. Forgiveness doesn't just mean taking away consequences. Right, that Stanford swimmer can be forgiven by his victim, but they also can hold out that he needs a proper jail sentence as well. There's a difference also between crying out for vengeance on a people 
or, or a regime, and then crying out for, uh, on individuals here. We long for justice, but the day isn't here yet. It's a time of waiting for wrath, and yet we offer mercy, though, in the meantime. We can simultaneously offer forgiveness to individuals and pray for them to be forgiven, while also praying for God to dismantle the oppressive regimes and movements. And perhaps part of that dismantling process, though, is also through the, the conversion of individuals who are associated. But then the third one, though, what if I don't feel comfortable singing it or praying something like this about the God of vengeance? Well, Jesus prayed this psalm too. Jesus sang this psalm just like all the other psalms. And he didn't do it sheepishly. He did it gusto. He did it with, with, with full from his heart there. And he did it also as the one who takes vengeance and knowing that full well. As we approach Christmas on Sunday, this next Sunday here, Jesus isn't just the humble little baby who came into a manger here. Jesus is, isn't just the humble and gentle king who went to the cross for the sins of his people, but he's also the warrior of justice and wrath who rises up and came to set everything straight that's wrong in this world. He came to, to defend what he loves we can't forget the image of Jesus also in Revelation 19, verses 11 and 21. We have him coming back as a conquering king on a, on a white horse, wearing a robe dipped in blood and striking down the nations with a sword coming from his mouth. He's not just the lamb who was slain for our sins. He's also the lion of Judah who roars. And our singing here, a psalm like this, is a trust in God's vengeance and not our own, or our lack thereof. So we have the God of vengeance, the second warns the arrogant. Okay. The arrogance of these people is seen through the defiant tone of their words and their actions as they crush the, lonely, uh, the, the, the lowly, starting in verse 4. Uh, there's defiance. At its heart here is an act of arrogance. Or perhaps we could say that arrogance manifests itself through defiance. It has an overly inflated view of oneself. And that's not to say that a defiant person thinks everyone else is lowly. I mean, take a high view of, other, of, of others, but taking an even higher view of oneself. <clears throat> it's the same idea that we see in this psalm here. It's arrogance taking its form in defiance against God. He doesn't see us. He doesn't know what we're doing. We can outfox God. We're not afraid of him. And meanwhile, though, here they are crushing the people that God loves, acting in defiance not only through their arrogance, but by breaking down uh, those whom he's clearly said that he's committed to caring for and protecting. It says his people who bear his name and have his covenant love set upon him. But we also see, though, the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, these people who were helpless, and they had no one to vouch for them. These were the people who over and over in, the, in God's law and throughout the prophets, they were told that they were under his special care. And yet despite all this, here are others acting as if God isn't there. God can't see what we're doing. He can't hear their cries. He can't hear the, the plans that we're concocting behind closed doors. They're not acting ignorantly. They clearly know who God is. They don't have misguided thoughts about him. But they're willfully turning against him and they're making themselves God. 
The contemporary examples that we think of, Putin, groups dedicated to racism or racial supremacy, people responsible for the awful images that we see in the news, it's the same thing. Verse 7, the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob doesn't perceive. How long, O Lord? You're a God of justice. You hate evil. You, know, you see and you know everything what's going on. And they are crushing what you love. They aren't, just, they aren't just messing with them. They're messing with you, God. And still we are here waiting. Why don't you rise up, God? Why don't you do something about it? But yet, though, those responsible for wickedness here are exposed for what they really are. They might see themselves as clever or strong, but they're really just a a bunch of fools, it says, with this way of thinking more like an animal than the rational thoughts of a human, right? It says in verse 8, understand, O dullest of the people, that the the original Hebrew idea there is is like beastly thinking. You're thinking more like an animal, irrationally, than you are a human, There's no sympathy that's given to them here like we would do for someone who's just a little mixed up or confused. They're not mixed up or confused or misguided in their thinking. It's a willful, defiant rebellion. But it's also an irrational, defiant rebellion because they've put the God who has clearly manifests himself out of their thinking and they've instead believed in their own arrogance and they think that they've got them all figured out. God can't see us. God can't hear us. Oh, really? Do you ever think about where your your ears come from? All the intricate design with the outer ear to, to, to scoop up and funnel the sound waves into your inner ear and then the delicate form of the design of your inner ear? You think God can't hear you? How about your eyes? That's pretty incredible that you have those eyes, right? How they collect light and then reflect a, an image that's actually upside down on the back of your retina. And then, and then they, that, that upside down image is sent by nerves to your brain where your occipital lobe uh, perceives it and it turns it right side up. You think God can't see? Who gave you those? Right? Where did, who made all that up for you? Oh yeah, it was the God who you say can't hear or can't see what you're doing. The God who you think you can outfox in your own cleverness and ingenuity. And you're accountable to him for all that he sees and all that he hears what you're doing. But this isn't just an indictment upon their own foolishness. It's also for us to remember what's going on too. Because when we see others who are acting with this kind of arrogance, aren't we also tempted to say, the Lord doesn't see. That's why he's not acting, because the Lord doesn't see or hear see it's for us to remember too and actually be comforted instead of warned but comforted that god knows and sees everything the god of vengeance warns the arrogant but third also comforts his people with certainty if the arrogant deny the knowledge of god then we have the antithesis here in verse 12 Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. They're not suppressing the truth of God. They're not thinking that they can circumspect him, but they recognize him. They are taught from him by his word. Blessed is the one, though, who is steeped in the ways of the Lord. Amid the havoc, blessed is the one whom the Lord teaches and conforms to his word and centers on the truth. 
Because in the times of deepest questioning or our observations of suffering and evil, that's what we need most. We need to hear again that God isn't deaf, that he's not blind. We need to hear that he takes seriously the suffering of his precious ones. And to be reminded again that he is the God of vengeance and he will pour out his perfect justice on those who seek to wreck it. Now, how many times have our own minds begun to go down that speculative rabbit trail when our thinking isn't perfectly grounded in truth? The absence of truth leads to speculation, and that leads some of us to go into some dark places. That endless cycle of asking, well, what if? And then believing it, and then going further in our thinking built upon that false premise, and then on and on and on. And for those of us who have anxiety, it happens all the more, and it can get quite serious. Our minds run wild, and the spiral of hopelessness sets in. What we need is is to break the cycle there. And what we need is truth to interrupt that repetition and to ground us in something objective and shake us back into reality. We always need that. But especially in times of troublesome waiting, we need that. The longer we wait, the more we need God's truth. The more difficult the wait, the more we need God's truth to cut our anxious thoughts or our idle speculations. We need the word of God. We need to be saturated in what God says and hearing over and over his promises so that it sinks into us, so that it gets into our bones and it forms our way of thought and our responses in life. It's the only way that we can wait with patience in the sad world in which we we live because frankly, sometimes the world is just absolutely appalling and atrocious. But we're not Stoics. We're not called to just suck it up and trudge ahead or to keep a stiff upper lip. We're to cry out, how long, O Lord? And meditating on God's word helps us to do so with hope. It gives us a clearer and refreshed picture of God watching amid the storm and his plans that he remains faithful to keeping. So who is he? Who is this God here? What are his plans? What are his promises? It's the rest of this psalm here. He didn't forsake his people, it says in verse 14. He didn't abandon his heritage that he took for himself. He returns justice to the righteous, verse 15. He's a help to his people. Without him, we would have been gone a long, long time ago. Verse 17. When our foot slips, he's the covenantal Lord. He has a steadfast covenantal faithfulness and even his name here Yahweh is a reminder of his covenant faithfulness verse 18 verse 19 he's a consolation to us in our very souls when we fear this is the only rock and stronghold that we could hope for in times of questioning and in trouble he holds us fast though the the waves buffer against us verse 22 there And he keeps his eyes upon the wicked. He takes note of all of it. And he will wipe them out in due time and give us peace. Verse 23. We come to his word for confidence and comfort. And he teaches us, or he reminds us again from it. And we find rest in our days of trouble. Verse 13. And that doesn't mean that the problem is resolved, but that our souls can be at peace even while we're waiting for the pit to be dug. Now, digging a pit can take a long time. 
We may not think so because we see excavators and modern equipment doing that, but you know what? Digging a pit by hand tools, digging a pit like in this time that would have been through their minds, it took a really long time. Digging a really big pit would take an even more, greater long time. But so the point is we watch, uh, we wait in this time, but do we worry? There's no need to because we can find rest and consolation in God's promises during that time. The Lord, or the God of justice, warns the arrogant but comforts his people with, with certainty so that forth, so that they will cry out in their suffering. This is for our crying out. It's to teach us also as we sing this psalm with them that as we are waiting for the same hope, we're waiting for the salvation of the Lord. Let me ask you, do you ever cry out, like, the, like in verse 23 here, for the Lord to wipe out their wickedness and to wipe them out? It sounds harsh, but it's appropriate. So let's think about what this cry ultimately is. And to do so, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. We need to go back all the way to Eden. God created Eden as a holy place. He created it as a temple, a sanctified place created by him and for him, a place where humanity could have intimate and holy communion with God. Part of God's covenant with Adam after he created him and after he put him in Eden was to give Adam a really important job to do. He said, guard it and keep it holy. Make sure that nothing will sully this place, that no evil will get in, that no filth or anything will come in here. And interfere with the close relationship that God has with humanity. But then the serpent, though, as we know, comes into the garden, looking to disrupt their harmony. And as Satan, as the, in the form of the serpent there, approached Eve, what was, what was Adam to do? Well, if he took, if he took properly his, his role and the task that God gave him, it was to expel the serpent, cut off his head, throw it out of the garden to preserve the holiness of that place. That's not what happened, was it? So after the fall, then, God had to do it. He had to expel not only the serpent, but also Adam and Eve from there. And Eden, though, wasn't only a specific place. It was also a microcosm of the whole world. It was a place that represented the entire earth. It was a place here, uh, which is also holy space here that we have, that God, God created and he, very good, and then he blessed it on the seventh day. The holiness of Eden wasn't only profaned. It was the entire earth, covered with thistles and thorns, infested with futility, and darkened by the wickedness of human evil. And here's the thing. Humanity has continued to fail miserably at expelling evil from the sacred space of this world, right? History has continued on repeat, and we haven't even shown any capability of getting rid of evil. We only find new and more efficient ways to accomplish it. But we cry out to God in desperation, and we wail and we lament and we beg that he would do what we've never been able to do from the very beginning, to expel the evil from the earth and to make this place holy and good once again. How long, O oh Lord... That's what we're waiting for. The cries for the God of vengeance to rise up aren't echoed in a vindictive manner, but are a cry for the Lord to get rid of evil and for his just goodness to flourish once again. Make this a holy place, Lord. 
But our waiting isn't in vain. In fact, it's already taken root. Adam couldn't do this. And as children of Adam, we haven't been able. But Jesus, as the second Adam, has. The cries of this psalm have been heard. They have begun to come to pass. God is at work. God himself came into the world to do this. That's exactly what he did here. God the Son took on human flesh. He became the second Adam for us. And he struck the crushing blow upon the head of the serpent on the cross. He rendered him powerless by taking away his ability to accuse us or to hold our sin against us because he bore it for us. Jesus says, as, as his, his kingdom begins to spread in the gospel, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He was expelling the serpent. Death isn't the end of the story for us anymore. That's not the final chapter of human history. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave has come to put death to death for us. Evil has no more power in this world. It's no longer the final say because Christ has come triumphant to rid the world of it. To expel all evil, all wickedness, and all sin. And he will come again to finish the job. As the king riding the white horse with the bloody robe to rid it all with finality and to restore holiness in this place. And to restore holiness in our hearts and lives. And so we wait. But not without hope. A psalm like this is for his work to be done. We pray for him to return and to set everything right. As children of God in Christ, we are beaten up in the dark alley behind the block in our neighborhood. We see others beloved by God our Father who are being beaten and harassed. And we need help. We need our bigger, stronger, older brother to come out and do what he does so well. To protect us to rescue us and expel them from this place, to make it a safe and good place once again so that we can laugh and sing and play freely. Is this what you want? Friends, is that what you long for? Or have we become so accepting of how things are that we have forgotten the hope of how things will someday be? Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out, come soon, Lord Jesus. How long will we wait until he comes? But yet we have the certainty that he will. And we cry out that you would do what you've promised from the very beginning to make this world right again. To bring your justice into the world and to restore this place from evil. To make it a place of freedom and joy not of fear and chaos and darkness. This is hard for us to, to think about sometimes because we are only so many times uh, thinking about Jesus and our, our Savior as, as one who is meek and lowly, but Lord, we also need him. We need a vision of him as our king, as, our, as the one who has conquered and the one who, will, who is the just judge. He is a warrior for us. We thank you. And we pray that he would bring evil to an end soon. Until that day, comfort us. Comfort us not with our own idle speculations, but comfort us from your word and that that would speak a more objective truth to us than what we see in the world. And bolster our confidence through it in your promises as you will hear very shortly through the, the table that we will come to.
And so prepare us for that as we do come and feed from the Lord Jesus Christ at his table. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.